Now, if you have your Bibles with you, please turn with me to the uh, text this morning. It comes from 1 Peter chapter 3. We'll be covering from verse 8 to 22. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8 to 22. And if you don't have your Bibles with uh, it'll be up here on the screen for you. And if you would all stand for the reading of God's word. Standing is an act of worship and respect for the very wor living word of, of God. 1 Peter 3 says this, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For this, for to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. The grass withers and the flower falls. Would you pray with me? Father, bless the preaching of your word, but bless your people as they listen to your word, for it is through your spirit alone that we can bring our sins to you, without fear, but with confidence. So that's what I pray for, God, that as we hear your word preached, may it really be the echoes of Christ's voice beckoning us to come and die, to lay our burdens, to lay our anxieties, to lay our brokenness, our sins, the things that we don't want people to touch. May we be free because we know that you love us. So bless us during this time. We pray all this in the saving name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. Well, the book of 1 Peter, let me give you a quick context here. Uh, the, the book is written to, a, to Christians who are in exiles, exile. They were forced out of their homes. They were forced to leave everything behind. If they just bought a house, they undersold that house. If they had kids in school, they had to pull them out. The, the book of 1 Peter is Christians who were forced by the Roman Empire to leave their home and go and settle into a region called Asia Minor, which at the time, there was nothing there. And mainly, it was mostly Christians that were, that were relocated because they were Christians. 
the Roman Empire thought, well, these are the guinea pigs. We don't really like them around anyways. So we're going to move them to an area and see if they survive. Along with them, they moved a bunch of other people, uh, some criminals, some businessmen looking for, uh, for opportunities to make a wealth. Now, First Peter this is why Peter writes them a letter to encourage them, to let them know that they're not alone, to encourage them, to let them give them hope that even though they left everything behind, that God still goes with them. These were Christians who were forced to live in exile. Now, if you read the, first, the, the, the letter from the beginning, Peter wants to encourage Christians to continue following Jesus wherever they are. And throughout the letter, he reminds them of their living hope, Christ himself. He calls them to seek holiness, to be holy. He exhorts them to cherish community and cherish fellowship with one another, to be faithful citizens in their humble submission to government and rulers, right? Marriage doesn't stop if they were married. So Peter exhorts them, exhorts spouses to winsomely and genuinely and humbly love one another, to pursue excellence in their jobs, keep working. And if the list had just ended there, it would have probably given the Christians at the time who were relocated a sigh of relief. They would have gone, whew. Because for the most part, these exhortations were reasonable exhortations. But Peter finishes off with what I would argue is the hardest Christian call for Christians. And that is this, to love your neighbors to not just tolerate those who have different views from you, but to treat them with dignity. I mean, this is the hardest Christian virtue. But for Peter, this is the heart of the Christian message. See, for Peter, he's writing to Christians who are relocated in the unknown world. But if we get this right, if they got this right, they can change this new world that they were moved to for Christ. And likewise, for you. Christians in the 22nd century, Lansdale can be changed if you get this right. This is an important letter. There are hard things found in this passage. It's a hard passage to preach. And my guess will be that some things may be hard to hear. The best biblical scholars, both current and past, consider when, the, when they consider this passage, they consider it to be the hardest passage in all of the New Testament. Then why this passage for you? Well, because like Peter, I believe that if Christians take this passage to heart, you can change Lansdale. You can change the greater Philadelphia region. And if Christians all around the world did this, we can change the world. So here's the gospel promise Peter offers to those who, were, who just lost everything behind, left everything behind. This is the promise that he wants them to keep in their hearts. And is this, he says, following Jesus will be the hardest thing you'll ever do. But take courage, for there's nothing on earth he has not subdued. See, following Jesus will be the hardest thing you will ever do. But you can take courage because there's nothing on earth that he has not subdued. Now, Peter tells us in this passage that for all Christians, there are three hard truths that will make our faith attractive to the watching, non-believing world, wherever you are. The first truth is hard, to is hard to do. The second truth is hard to believe. And the third truth is hard to understand. 
The first truth is hard to do. The second is hard to believe. And the third is hard to understand. So first, what is it that is hard to do? Well, as he gets closer to concluding his letter, Peter wants to say something to all Christians. He says, all of you. This is not just for spouses, but also for singles, widowers, and divorcees. Not just workers and bosses, but the unemployed as well. Not just the young, but also the older folk. All of you. See, parents with young children, middle school, college, empty nesters, low, middle, high income, Baptist, Methodist, Presbyterians, and non-denominationals, everything in between. If you claim to follow Christ, this is the one thing that applies to all of you. What is it? We read in verse 8. He says this, have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. But in the contrary, bless for this you are called, that you may obtain a blessing. Now the hard thing all Christians are called to do is love people who intentionally and intelligently mock and curse you. You know, to be a Christian in Peter's time was no easy thing. Just to mention a few, you lived in a society where the majority was okay with killing infant babies if they had some form of deformity. For why should a baby be allowed to live if it had nothing to contribute to society? Let's just mercy kill it. And if you went around saying that uh, 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 those babies are fearfully and wonderfully made by our Lord, it would have been the doctor's. And the army officers who would have looked at you as a fool. Take exclusivity. Religion in the Roman Empire encouraged many views and the worship of many gods. And if you went around saying, uh, 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 there's only one God and one Lord, it would have been the professors and the politicians, not just the common folk who would have labeled you as narrow-minded and, fu and fundamental. Take sexuality. Roman society promoted the indulgence of pleasure at all costs. And in fact, it was quite common for married men to have intimate relationships and sleep around. And if you went around saying, uh-uh, sex is intimacy is only within a healthy marriage, it would have been the temple priests and the prestigious members of society, the businessmen who would have made fun of you as a prude and a joy kill. Take science. At the heart of Christianity lies the belief that Jesus was crucified and that he resurrected from the dead. And if you went around saying that, no, he's still alive, it would have been the scientists at the time who would have looked at you as delusional. All to say, Christians quickly became in this new world that they inhabited a lightning rod of mockery and slander from all types of people. Conservatives and liberals, blue and white collar workers, civilian and military, Christians were disliked by all. They didn't fit the world's categories. I mean, imagine sending your kids at the time and the teachers automatically label them as brainwashed just because they know you're a Christian family. Imagine trying to date and getting rejected because they find out that you don't believe in sex outside of marriage. I mean, imagine your friends going, going to see a gladiator games, but you never get invited because you're too naive, you're too sensitive, and you just care too much about injustice and the poor. Christians didn't fit. Perhaps for some of you, you know what this is like. If you've lived out your faith outside of these walls, you may have experienced people labeling you as narrow-minded, naive, oppressive, and thoughtless. 
And how are we to react to a world that mocks and slanders us and the church, a world that may talk behind our backs? Peter says in verse 9, he says, bless them. Verse 9, it shows us a mature Peter. Because if you know anything about Peter, if you read the Gospels, during his time with Jesus, Peter was the one who cursed back. He was the one who would have told Jesus, hold my, hold my wine. I'm going to take care of this. You stay over here. I'll be back. Because he was about to go full rock Dwayne Johnson on whoever was making fun of him. Peter was the only disciple who drew the sword. But in verse 9, we find a more mature disciple calling all Christians to bless when you're cursed at, to love when people loathe you, to be sad but not vengeful when you're mocked. What, what changed? Well, he tells us in the second half of verse 9. He says this, For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. Now, Peter's logic is this. For all Christians... When others make less of you, when they speak ill of your reputation, we have great reason to not retaliate because we've obtained God's favor. The only opinion that matters, the only favor that counts is His. This is why Peter in verse 10 to 12, he quotes a particular psalm. In uh, Psalm 34, the context is that David, the anointed king of Israel, is running for his life from Saul and he's exiled into enemy territory. He has to leave home. He's forced from his home. And while David is resting in a cave, Saul, the one who's after him, unknowingly fell asleep in the same cave, tired from his search. David could have seized the day, not only once, but twice. It would have been so easy for him to curse Saul with a death sentence and take what he felt was his. But instead of that, what, what does he do? He blesses him. He forgives him because he trusts that even though Saul could not acknowledge him as king, David's God did. How was David able to bless and not take revenge? We're told in verse 12, it's knowing you have God's favor. It is knowing that God sees all and justice is his. It's being secure in that you have nothing to prove. Now, allow me to bring this to this principle to the 21st century, um, to modern times. It's pretty obvious that the majority sentiment from the pro-choice crowd, the LGBTQ community, the agnostics, and even atheists towards the church is not so favorable. What is Peter's call to all Christians towards the enemies of the church, those who speak ill of us? It is to bless them. Not in the sense of, oh, bless their heart. No. But specifically to refrain from speaking ill of them. Yes, to pray for them, but also to watch our tones towards them, towards them when theirs towards ours is harsh. I mean, similarly, how do we bless the enemies in our day-to-day -day lives? Maybe you have a boss who makes you feel unappreciated. The rude employee at the grocery store who won't bag your groceries. The politician who conflicts with every single one of your values. The friend who is spreading lies about you. The spouse who thinks maybe that you're crazy to be a Christian and wasting your time. 
We're called to use our speech to encourage and appreciate them, to compliment them in the areas where we can, and even thank them for some of their criticisms and insights for helping us see areas in our life that we may fall short in. Now, I have to make a quick mention of this. Peter is not talking, telling Christians to take abuse. Abuse is not the context of this letter. So please, if you or someone you know is in an abusive relationship, do not use this text to tolerate such abuse. Go to your elders. Go to your church leaders and talk to them. Talk to someone. For Christians, to not retaliate with our words is not something we didn't know we're called to do. But if we're honest, it is a very hard thing to do. Let me offer one more reflection off of this text. In verse 9, Peter reminds Christians that conflict and division is not just outside of the church, but inside. So it is important for Christians to seek unity with each other, and this unity is to be sought after in humility. As you may know, unity is not uniformity. Gospel unity is when you and I seek to outdo each other in Christ-like humility. So as to remind each other, of how Jesus relates to us. That even despite our differences, we may refrain from slandering each other because at the end of the day, we remember that we're playing for the same team. That as Paul reminds us in Philippians 2, that we follow the same Lord. And though you could be on the right side of the argument, the tone with which you speak to one another ought to reveal the Lord to whom you serve. We only have to think as far back as a year ago when the stances on Masking, politics, social justice, race, it brought the worst in us. And whichever side you fell on these topics, I'll be the first to admit that my speech, both in private and public, towards the other side has many times failed to bless brothers and sisters within the church. And my leaders, how about you? Now, I know that things have cooled down from what they used to be about a year ago. But at the very least, we have to admit that instead of unity, we may have shown the world that our Jesus made no difference in our differences. That we were far too concerned in being right than repentant. That we were more concerned in tearing each other's arguments than building each other up. That we care far too much about our truths that we have forgotten to watch our tone. I mean, have you taken the time to repent? And you may be saying, well, that was a year ago. Well, watch out. Next year is election year. Big year. If the things and the tensions that you felt the church is resting from now, be alert. They might come out just as quickly. How will you be prepared? Peter invites us in the first section to keep repentance close to our hearts as blessing others is a hard thing to do, especially those we disagree with, especially those who criticize us. But this is what we were called to do, for God's favor is on us. This is how we strive for unity. Now, secondly, Peter moves us to consider a truth that's hard to believe. What is hard to believe? Well, it's hard to believe that God is for you when hardships and sufferings come. Look with me at verse 13 to 14, if you have your Bibles open. It says this, Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. 
Peter does not want Christians to be under this illusion that if we do all the right things in life and in our faith, that if you follow all the Christian practices, that your life will be pain-free. I mean, you don't have to be a Christian to know that that's not how life works. We know that life can be brutal and not fair. In the Bible, we find the story of Job, a man who loved his family, his children, was honest and generous, and in the blink of an eye, he goes from riches to ruin. So what does Peter mean when he says, who is there to harm you? What? Is Peter blind to the fact that people can get sick and you could get diagnosed with cancer or something else? You could lose your job. Your relationship with your children could become estranged. Your relationship with your parents, could you could see no hope there. You can become depressed. You can become, feel loneliness. You can have a hard time making ends meet financially. You can lose loved ones who you thought would be here from here 10 years from now. You could lose them within a year. And the list goes on and on. How can Peter assure believers that who is there to harm you? What is he saying? Well, Peter is echoing, echoing Jesus' words found in Matthew 10. 10 verse 28, where Jesus says, And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Now, Jesus reminds us there that this life is not the climax of history, that neither your boss nor your wealth, your family nor your health, that none of these determine the ending of your life story. See, for Peter, external circumstances can never change the eternal reality that even if tragedies were to claim your life, your Father in heaven will not let your soul be crushed. That you are His unwavering delight. Peter wants Christians to remember that it must be nice and it must be really nice to have the Father on your side, and you do, because Jesus is with you. Now, why is this truth important? Because when you're going through hardships, when suffering strikes, when things start falling apart, you know God loves you here. But it's hard to believe He loves you here. You know all the theological answers. God loves you here. It's really hard to believe He loves you here. Let that sink in for a moment. On January of last year, 2022, when everybody was excited to start a new year, Jen and I were awakened by a phone, uh, a phone call from my mom who was visiting Korea at the time. And all of a sudden, she told us she had a sudden sharp pain on her side and went to see the doctor. And they told her that she needs surgery right away. The best case scenario for her was that she had stage three ovarian cancer. You receive a phone call like that and your mind begins to raise with questions that there are no answers yet. That phone call set the tone for us for 2022. It was a rough year. And some of you know what this is like. You hear the strongest person you know in the world in tears and you just can't go back to sleep night after night. And there's this war within you because I knew that God loved me here. 
but it was very hard to believe he loved me here. Some of you know what this is like. Some of you are probably wrestling with this right now. Maybe for some of you, you've become content with knowing here, but not here. But look at what Peter says in verse 15. He says, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. See, Peter knew that when your life feels like it's crumbling, the battle is not so much on your theological content, but it's on your heart's confidence. To honor Christ as holy in the midst of your hardship is to not divorce your head from your heart. But for Peter, it is to preach to your heart's unbelief and cherish and to wrestle with the promise that Jesus won't abandon you and he has not abandoned you, that the road to, of suffering is not meaningless and that he will sustain you day by day. It's experientially witnessing to yourself to believe that God works all things for your good. See, confidence does not mean that you are unfazed by your troubles. But confidence is a heart that clutches on to your Savior because there's no other anchor. Verse 15 is often the main verse for Christians to be ready to defend your faith. We call it apologetics. And it is important for Christians to be able to hold our ground and be able to give rational and intelligent answers uh, to those who have questions about our faith. But friends, notice this. Peter is not talking to scholars who've read Bavink and Turretin. He's talking to everyday Christians. How do you defend your faith? Peter says, you just share your day-to-day -day experiences of what it's like wrestling with the promises of the gospel. In other words, come what, come what may, be ready to explain to someone why Jesus is more precious to you than anything else in this world. And if you don't think you can do that, at the very least, share to people that though you have plenty of reasons to leave him behind, you don't want to. You just can't. What this means, friends, is that you don't need a seminary degree to defend your faith. You don't need lofty arguments or conclusive scientific proof to successfully defend your faith. But here's what you do need. You need to know why Jesus is different and more precious to you than anything else in this world. So precious that no amount of suffering makes, makes you believe otherwise. Do you have that? Do you have that head and heart? See, when suffering comes, it's hard to believe God loves you here. But for Peter, when this happens, your witness for Christ will be genuine and desirable to the eyes of the world. Lastly, Peter gives us a truth that's hard to understand. Hard to understand. Now, when the great um, reformer Martin Luther came to verses 18 and 22 of this chapter, he wrote this about this section. He said, quote, this is a strange text and certainly a more obscure passage than any other passage in the New Testament. I still do not know for sure what the apostle meant. That's hope for you right there. Another scholar described it like this. 
The exegetical questions basically come down, basically come down to these. Where did Christ go? When did he go? To whom did he speak? What did he say? Different answers to each of these questions can be found resulting in a labyrinth of exegetical options, each of which has no clearly overwhelming claim to certainty, with one calculating 180 different exegetical combinations in theory. Challenge accepted. Well, when I worked on this text, I put all of my seminary training into effect. I dusted off those, that, those Greek manuscripts. I read five commentaries, pray for the Holy Spirit's illumination, and even held my Westminster diploma. I know it was this past week in hopes that it will, those Latin words will give me a little bit of juice. I kept saying, I'm a Westminster grad. <laughs> I can get this. And after hours and hours of preparation, I'm glad to report to you that I have no clue what this passage means. But I think I have an idea of the overall theme. Here's an educated guess among many. Remember, there's 180 combinations. But here's what I think Peter is trying to get at. How does our faith become desirable to the watching world? When we meditate often on this truth that's hard to understand. And here's the truth. Ready? Here's the truth. Jesus loves us because he loves us. Bam. Mic drop. Four years of seminary right there. Jesus loves us because he loves us. Now, why is it our truth to understand? You might be saying, what? Yep, you heard that right. Look at verse 18. We find in verse 18 here a Trinitarian summary of the gospel. Jesus died for sinners so that we could come before God in forgiveness. And his righteousness is ours. And only because Jesus was raised by the Holy Spirit and became our advocate so that no amount of success or failure or death or demons can part us from him. That's what we see in verse 22. This is succinct summary of the gospel. But the mystery of why he would do such a thing for sinners is the mystery behind all of God's love for us. See, Jesus went to the cross for us not based on kinship, nor merit, nor potential. It certainly was not our genuineness in affection towards him. This love is a mystery love. And to make this point, Peter in verse 19 to 20, he gives the example of Noah. And here's the logic. You have to stick with me. In verse 19, Peter explains that Jesus went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Now, some believe the spirits in prison are demons. Others believe these are the Old Testament people that died before Jesus, and they're trapped in some form of waiting for Jesus to rescue them. But here's my take on this. I believe these spirits in prison is talking about the people during Noah's time that did not believe judgment was coming, and the only way for salvation was to believe and get on the ark. Then the question becomes, when did Jesus speak to them? Well, he did so through Noah, just as God spoke through the prophets in the Old Testament. And because you're cornerstone, you, you might be thinking, give me another proof. Well, I'll give you another proof. Paul in Ephesians 2.17, he says this. He says, writes to the church in Ephesus, and he says that they believed the gospel when, he says, verse 17, when he, Jesus, came and preached to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. But Jesus never set foot in Ephesus. 
He was already ascended by them. Then how could he speak to them unless it was through the apostles and the missionaries? All to say this, I believe Peter mentions Noah because he wants his readers to reflect that God saved Noah and his family, not based on Noah's performance nor potential. See, I mean, think through this with me for a second. If God was, God's plan was to repopulate the earth because the world was, there was too much wickedness. Everybody was corrupt. Why in the world would he pick Noah? And you may say, well, he was a righteous man and he, maybe he deserved it. Maybe he had the potential to do good. He was better than his peers. He was the best pick. But even if that were true, God also knew that he would commit serious sins. Noah was a drunkard and an angry man. Why not just start from scratch? Why still save him? And the answer is hard to understand. It's the mystery of love. See, God saved Noah not based on his potential, but based on his promise. In Deuteronomy 7, we find the same hard truth. Why did God deliver the Israelites from slavery from Egypt? Was it their potential to be a faithful, grateful, loving, merciful people? No, we know that's not, not how they turned out to be. In Deuteronomy, it tells us that God did this because not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and he chose you for you were the fewest of all, but it is because the, Lord's, the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. In simple, why would God love some sinful, broken, unstable, ungrateful people? while choosing to not love some sinful, broken, unstable, ungrateful people? This is a hard truth to understand. But it is because he does. God chooses some to love and others to forsake. This is a hard truth to understand. But for Christians, when we wrestle with this hard truth, when we let it be the center of our faith, it makes us grateful and humble. This is why Peter in verse 21, he makes the point that a person who gets baptized with genuineness and not just as a check in the box, that's what he means by removal, removal of dirt from the body. He will be saved. The more we come to grips with the fact that God had no reason to save us, there was no potential in us, there was no goodness in us. It wasn't that God was watching us to see how we would perform, how we would perform under stress and suffering and see if we could make it. To see how we would answer to people who question our faith. No. When we understand that God saves us because he saves us, because he loves us because he loves us, this allows the soul to loosen our grips of entitlement and pride. And in a strange, wonderful way, it instills in us gratitude and affection, not, ordered, not in order to repay, but out of all. Why is this good news? Because there may be some of you who may have been struggling with the same sin over and over and over and over and over. And if you feel that by the nth time you go to God himself at his throne and you were to ask him the question, why do you love me? He's, he might reconsider, say, that's a good question. Why do I love you? For some of you, you feel undesired by the world. Circumstances have overtaken you. You're not the ideal image of what the world appreciates. And when you, got, when you go to the Lord and you ask him, why do you love me? You expect him to say, yeah, 
Jimmy over there is far better. I'm not sure. Charity? <laughs> Peter is saying no. It doesn't matter how you turn out to be. It doesn't matter what you accomplish. It doesn't matter what your failures are. When you come to the Lord, He loves you because He loves you. His love is who He is. And this is hard to understand. There's this story of a young boy and his dad who lived in a house by the lake. And as long as he could remember, the boy could see through his bedroom window that a man day after day without fail would stand by the water and feed the ducks. One day, little Jimmy turned to his dad and, and asked him and said, isn't it strange? He's there every day feeding the ducks. Does he not have a life? The dad turned to his son and said, that man owes his life to the ducks. Huh? Many years ago, his platoon in Vietnam was ambushed by enemy soldiers. And as they tried to escape, someone on his team stepped on a landmine, and, um, which ended up killing everyone except him, leaving him unconscious. When he regained consciousness, he noticed that the enemy was too close. To, to, so he decided to play dead as his best means of survival. But then he noticed as the enemy drew near and near, as they drew closer, he noticed that they were stabbing the bodies to make sure the soldiers were dead. He's doomed. This is it, he thought. And just when he thought that there was no hope left, he realized this flock of ducks fly over him and away from him. And the soldiers began shooting the ducks instead. That man owes his life to the ducks. He wonders, why me? Why me? I don't know. But that man owes his life to the ducks. Church, here's the hardest thing to understand about the gospel message. A holy God has all the right to completely wipe out every single human being in history. And his wrath was approaching and approaching and approaching. And all of a sudden, this God decides not to send just a flock of ducks, but his very own son to steer that wrath away. Not based on your potential, not based on your loveliness, but solely based on his grace. And for some reason, this holy God chooses to be wiped out in our stead. For some reason, that's hard to comprehend. This holy, infinite God chooses to love us instead. And when our lives are stumped by this kind of grace, call it fortune, if you will, it will make us into a people who bless when we're cursed, who rejoice when suffering comes. Because this God has subdued all things that keep us from being loved by Him. And He showed us on the cross that there's no price He is unwilling to pay to love us. Friends, we, may we never lose the tension of this hard and wonderful truth that you are loved because he loves you, saved because he saves. And until he returns or calls us home, let us gladly follow Christ through the hard but worthy road. Would you pray with me? Father, your love is incomprehensible. It knows no bounds. To us, it makes no logical sound. 
but your love is all that we have. When we go through hardships, when, you're, when we are questioned about our faith, your love is all that we have, the most powerful thing that we stand on. And Father, I pray that as your church, we may never lose this tension. May we return to it over and over again, that Jesus, you just love us because you love us. May we receive it, May we be transformed by it. And may we obey because we are delighted by it. Lord, would you continue building your church as we worship and respond? We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.